When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here today with a really exciting guest. We're joined by Professor Abel Mendez. Um, Professor Mendez is a planetary astrobiologist and director of the Planetary Habitability Laboratory at the University of Puerto Rico at Arecibo. His research focuses on the habitability of Earth, the solar system, and extrasolar planets. Um, Professor Mendez, how are you doing today? Oh, great. Thank you. Nice to have to be here. Yeah, it's nice to nice to have you on the show. We um, so I was really excited. First off, I was excited to kind of uh, have you agree to come on the show. And then this is sort of a great I feel like it's a great time to be talking about this subject because everybody on Earth is desperate to get off of this planet. So it's sort of the perfect time. <laughs> give us uh, give listeners a little bit of info. I guess, on what your work is. What does it actually mean to be an astrobiologist? Well, I am an astrobiologist. I focus mostly on planetary science. I am a physics and biophysics by training. And astrobiology is the science that studies life on Earth. Everybody thinks that this is uh, just uh, searching for extraterrestrial life. But it's also there is a great component of astrobiology doing the science of Earth. So all the problems related to the origin, to the evolution, distribution of life, we can translate the, those uh, problems to Earth without needing to invoke extraterrestrial life. So what, what was our origin? How life got distributed on our planet? Well, what is our future? But uh, also astrobiologists do uh, try to understand life uh, in the rest of the universe. So that's why they also are intrigued by the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Okay, really cool. So I think the first time that I was ever, at least personally, introduced to the concept of astrobiology was actually watching... I want to say it was something like on the History Channel or maybe the Discovery Channel or National Geographic, one of the, you know, some TV channel where they were talking about extremophiles and how these other organisms could exist on Earth in places that, you know, nothing else could exist, right? So it was something like, I want to say it was like a slug or something that existed um, near lava flumes, right, in the ocean. <laughs> and I remember being so, so intrigued by it, but... In my background, I am – I was always really bad at biology, um, frankly, <laughs> and always good at chemistry and physics. So that's kind of – you know, I went into engineering. But in terms, I guess, of the fundamentals of what – if someone listening to this was really interested in astrobiology and wanted to learn more about it, where would you suggest they sort of go? Like what – are there good resources, good books? I know you've written a book on um, – on this subject, uh, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Uh, yes, uh, uh, like uh, I say to my students, if you want to study astrobiology, you can focus in any particular uh, branch of science. You can study for your bachelor degrees in, in engineering, astronomy, astrophysics, biology, chemistry. But then for graduate school, then you have to focus in uh, more astrobiology related problem. Mm. And as you said, for your experience with astrobiology, uh, that's uh, life is in stream environments is an important component for those people studying the possibility of microbial life in the solar system. So you're, you are there as a biologist trying to uh, understand the possibilities of life elsewhere. But uh, so I said that there, we can be astrobiologists that focus more on terrestrial uh, uh, problems and those that focus more in uh, solar system or exoplanets. So I focus more in exoplanets, planets around other stars. So my book, uh, it's about focusing in the possibility of uh, habitable planets elsewhere in the universe. So one thing that always kind of strikes me as interesting is, and, and so, you know, on our show, we talk a lot about more of the, I guess, less scientific ideas that exist out there on the internet or on TV about things like extraterrestrial life or civilizations. And one thing that always strikes me as interesting is the fact that when, when people tend to report that they've seen an alien or something, or they imagine what an alien would be like, or an extraterrestrial would be like, they tend to imagine that these beings would basically look like humans, right? They're usually bipedal. Maybe they have extra arms or legs or whatever, but they're, um, you know, they have sort of cognition. They have eyes. They have an ability to taste and eat. And like all of the biology, it's pretty similar to humankind. It's just sort of a little bit, you know, they're humans with green skin or something. Do you think, and one question we often ask, and we even talk about it on the show a lot here, is this idea of sort of, I don't really want to call it co convergent evolution because that's not really what, that's not really the right wording for it. But I guess... If you do you think there's any reason to believe that if we were to encounter life on another planet, that it would be like life here in any way? Oh, yes. There's some things that force you for an intelligent life like mm. us. I mean, naturally, to uh, those uh, uh, environmental pressures might not be true for other simple life forms but true for intelligent life. For example, okay, the problem um, of intelligence, we always think about intelligence just the brain, but it's also a package. You have that brain to interact with the environment and uh, more capability to interact with the, with the environment, let's say uh, through voice, if you can communicate by voice, if you can communicate by light, something that we don't do, but some animals do, <laughs> And, um, and, and, and if you have ears to, to receive those signals, the, that's something important for an intelligent species. Also very important is the ability to manipulate the environment, good hands, good legs to move around. And that's uh, something that uh, sometimes you see in science, science fiction movies, that's intelligent uh, life form that is like a blob or something. <laughs> or something right. that it cannot create technology. 
Mm. It, it has the capability. So it, so beyond the brain, it, it needs good uh, extremities, good sensors to interact with the environment. And there's also something related to, to breathing because uh, they probably and very likely require oxygen like us. And there, and there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, of all the gases that are abundant in a planet, that could be abundant in a planetary atmosphere, only oxygen could provide en enough energy for some organisms to have motility, to have motion. So uh, simple life forms like microbial life can breathe other uh, gases and they can survive because they are so simple that don't require that much energy. But once you are asking for a multicellular organism, a bigger complex life, even like plants, then you will have to have some good gas in the atmosphere to, to produce that, that energy, especially if it, if it moves. Mm. So only oxygen of all the gases that are abundant in the atmosphere, there are other gases. But if you have a other gases in the minimum quantity, you already have more oxygen available. So that's one important thing to have oxygen. And uh, we don't know of any animal life or complex life, like we say in general on Earth, that doesn't require uh, uh, oxygen. And the hint that we got that some animals could do are very, very small, very simple. But as I said, microbial life in general could use other gases because they don't need much. Another important thing is to, and probably the most important thing for uh, technology is that uh, for a uh, building technology, you need to melt uh, metals. You need to uh, melt uh, glass. You know, that it, it is such a simple point that I never realized before. Yes, that is in that, Of course, of course, they would. Eat. OK, continue. I'm sorry. You just blew my mind. So so uh, the only gas that can produce that heat that could combine and produce that heat to create fire is oxygen. Right. No other gas are abundant in the nature that can do that. So if this uh, alien, they want to build technology, start with, uh, through evolution and starting um, uh, doing tools of bronze, of iron, and how all that process through time, they will re definitely require <laughs> oxygen in the atmosphere. They will definitely will require uh, fire, unless their ships are built of stones and wood. Otherwise, they will require uh, uh, fire. So, all the uh, TV shows that show you alien life from, from the ocean, intelligent life from the oceans, that's not good. Even if you have a, a lot of oxygen in your atmosphere, it won't be enough oxygen in the ocean just to uh, create fire. So that uh, they could have uh, big brains and being, uh, they could be manipulate the environment, though, but they won't be able to go beyond uh, uh, simple tools, not the technology that we have, even if they have the brain and the, and, and the manipulation of the environment. Right. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's such a. Yes, that's a very strong point. 
It's an extremely strong point. I'm like, I'm, I can't believe that I never even would have considered that as, as a, as a, as some, you know, oh my goodness, you blew my mind here. That's amazing. But, but, but it, that, that, uh, the point of oxygen is still uh, needed for, uh, uh, as an energy source for, for a complex life. It's also stronger than that. If you feel that that's strong, it's still the need for a, the motion of the, of the, of the organism. It needs oxygen too. That's why it provides a lot of energy uh, for fire and for, for keeping a, 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 a complex organism uh, functioning. Another issue is that uh, I, so, so that tells you something. If you find, you know, hanging around a, a extraterrestrial uh, being, they probably breathe oxygen as you. They might, the atmosphere might include other gases that could be toxic, but definitely sure. it will have oxygen and oxygen in the atmosphere, enough oxygen to breathe. Another thing is that they should be familiar with things that we are very familiar, like rain. And uh, that's and that this is another important thing. For keeping large uh, organisms, you need food for those. And sure. so those organisms to evolve need a lot of food. And, and uh, so where they will get food to, to be in enough uh, quantity to evolve to an intelligent species, those are in the forest. Forests are the more, more habitable place on earth because they provide a lot of uh, energy. So, and um, one way to uh, uh, take more energy from food, you know what, is cooking, again, fire. So, uh, and actually anthropologists and uh, people studying this think that that was a key feature. That, that's why our brains got bigger because we were uh, able to uh, cook food and uh, take more uh, nutrition from that minimum food. Sure, so sure, it, yeah, it, yeah. So again, fire gain and oxygen gain is important for, for, for life. And the issue of having a forest, you need uh, the forest, for having a forest, you need to have a lot of water. And where in land, how you can put a lot of water? By rain. And if you uh, want that rain, you need a search for that water. And that's the ocean. So that forces you, if you want a planet with animals, intelligent or not, you need a planet with land areas, you need a planet with oceans. So. Every time you see in a movie, like uh, a sci-fi movie, the life in oceans alone, that's not good. Life in uh, living in deserts like tattooing, that's not good either. No moisture farms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So unless others are, those are uh, after they have evolved technology and they visit that planet. Sure, and then right. They yeah. just want to stay there. They, they now handle. But naturally to evolve life from those environments to be complex, that's uh, very difficult. And they probably just go through microbial life naturally. Hmm. So even having a, a planet with ocean, you need also the nutrients from soil, especially phosphorus, which sure. dilutes in the water and precipitates. So you need land nearby. But anywhere, you need forests to provide that food and that's rain and that's uh, ocean. So as you see, 
Now I'm telling you that this planet for intelligent life has land areas, has oceans, has rain, has forests, and has, uh, has to have uh, oxygen atmosphere. So it, it tends to look not that far from, from, from what we know. Right. It's, yeah, it's Earth. It's just Earth kind of 2.0, right? Yes. Yes. It looks hmm. like that. But if we're talking about microbial life, wow, that's, that's a diversity of planet that could hold microbial life in exotic gases and different hmm. compositions. Wow. That's, that's very wild. So I guess I can. So my, my background is in, is in chemical engineering and sort of chemistry, right? Like metal organic chemistry specifically. But so I can see from I can see from the biology point of view and even the technological point of view that you would need oxygen in the atmosphere to be able to kind of even develop into an advanced civilization. You would but the, I guess I'm wondering or I guess part of me wonders why it has to be water. Right. Why couldn't it be another uh, another highly, you know, uh, another solvent? Yes. Another solvent, right? Yeah, something, you know, again, something that would include oxygen so that it could exist in equilibrium with the atmosphere. But I'm thinking about, you know, I mean, I don't know, alcohol rain. I mean, alcohol maybe is a bad example, but, you know, something like that, right? Uh, something with, with uh, carboxylic acid groups or um, something like that. Like, is there a reason that it has to be water or is it kind of that we, you know, <sighs> Yeah, does it have to be water, I guess? That's probably the simplest way of putting that question. Well, so far, we can speculate that it could be something else. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, the moon of Saturn, Titan, has ethane and methane lakes, mm -hmm. mostly methane. And um, so you have a, a surface of the planet where you have a solid component, you have a, a liquid component, and you have a gas component. Mm -hmm. So, so that uh, could provide an uh, in theory, and uh, and but that will be totally different from life of, from us. And in that respect, there's a, uh, there's a big issue because just to have those uh, conditions, you will need a different thermal environment. And if you have, uh, in this case, it's very low temperatures. Uh, water will be rock there. Mm, got it. Okay. Yep. And then uh, it's because it's also everything will be moving very slowly. Mm -hmm. Evolution will be very slow. You will need to have also, anyway, the oxygen, if you're thinking about an intelligent life uh, developing in, in, in those conditions. But it will be very, very hard compared to the planet with water because uh, temperatures are so low, reaction rates are moving so slow that uh, you have to compete that reaction rate of, mm -hmm. of uh, biological uh, and metabolic uh, uh, reactions with the environment and, and changes in the environment that might be uh, destroying or for different reasons, uh, any intent of creating life at the, and then trying to preserve life in those conditions. So it's, uh, we, don't, we don't think it's, it's not impossible so far, thinking about that. And there are a lot of people thinking about that problem in particular. Um, but uh, compared to in, in, uh, in terms of water, even that water also provides a, a wider range of temperatures where it could be still liquid compared to any other uh, liquid. 
Right. It it really is sort of, mm-hmm. man, when they call it the Goldilocks zone, they are not kidding. Everything really is just right. You know, it's it's kind of it's so interesting because, yeah, of course, if it if it has to be a solvent that is able to exist, first off, to be a solvent that would be able to exist in an equilibrium with its gaseous phase and its liquid phase to be able to do the kind of thing we're saying oxygen must be able to do and transport. It's it would have to be like one of, yeah, you know, like maybe, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen solvents. And the most simple of those is water. It's just it's so it's more than versatile anyway. Right. And and you will have uh, you have all the problems with solvents. Solvents. You have uh, if they freeze over, the environment changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, lakes will freeze over from bottom top, not from the top bottom. Right, which is right. So it's not good for animals <laughs> living in, in those uh, water liquid environments. Boy, oh boy. So, man, that's fascinating. So okay, so. One thing that you touched on that I think was really interesting, especially is and especially so on our, you know, in one of the projects that kind of we're involved with, or at least I'm involved with, is actually building um, building something to to kind of view the skies and a camera system and and everything else to try to think if there is something visiting us, could we capture it or, you know, whatever. We're working on something kind of fun that I think. I think you might get a kick out of after this, I think, talking to you now. But and with that, we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So one thing you mentioned that I thought was really fascinating, and especially from the perspective of people on Earth who... What, so one thing I've often said, and maybe this was maybe this was incorrect, actually, now that we're talking and it... You know, it's sort of fascinating how much how much we have going right for us here on Earth. Of, I mean, of course we do, right? We we exist. We've evolved to become intelligent, um, or at least isn't in, at least intelligent enough to question these things. I guess I should say. Um, but I'm one thing I often wonder, and we often talk about this, is the question of communicating. You know, it, let's say okay, all of the other barriers are are overcome. We manage to travel the stars and we land on a planet that looks like ours and we land in the middle of some other civilization's, you know, version of, I don't know, downtown Orlando, right? Like (laughs) you end up in their city and you want to try to communicate with these other beings that have have evolved. Um, I've often wondered if the – like – there's that famous quote from um, Wittgenstein, right? He said, if a lion could speak, we couldn't understand him because the difference in our lived experience is so different. But in this case, now I'm sort of thinking, well, actually, our, our lived experience might not be all that different at all, right? We, we would live on planets that have similar geography and climate and um, 
probably have similar, uh, you know, maybe different cultural evolutions, but generally pretty similar evolution in terms of, you know, we would have appendages to do things with tools and we would um, need liquid and solid to survive and we would probably hunt for food and right, like all these other things. Do you, I guess, is there a reason to think that we would evolve similar communication methods? Well, uh, that could be quite diverse. Mm. We produce uh, sounds and have the capability to hear those sounds. But I can uh, try, I can consider other ways of communicating, like light changes in colors, like uh, uh, many uh, simple organisms do. And uh, that probably is much better to talk at a distance. I can think about two different uh, beings for kilometers, seeing the flashes in their skin or so. And use that as a as a communication with voice that's very limited on how far screaming, how far uh, you can go through that, <laughs> and uh, and probably uh, by by uh, touch also changes electrical changes uh, sensations and how you touch might say uh, something different. So I can uh, think of a diversity, much more diverse. Uh, with uh, to communicate so that's true that will be quite complicated so the first thing you have to inspect this alien for <laughs> is, it, is it using ears is it changing colors or or what uh where we start trying to communicate that will be very hard mm. but it's a little but i i guess it's a little bit though you know the thing that i would wonder is and there are there are some really interesting sort of philosophers and scientists who think about language, especially who talk about, you know, there's common, like you, one would imagine that if they, if they also need to take in food, that they would have a concept of, of food, right? They would have some concept of food. And so you could at least begin to create a communication that way where, look, I'm sharing my food with you. So I'm not a threat. Like it's not as again, it's not as different as say, you know, you're trying to communicate with a blob monster and they <laughs> right there's there. They have nothing there for you to talk to. Um, so, OK, so currently, though, when we look for other when we think then for planets that are potentially habitable, we're looking that and that completely makes sense now we're looking for this kind of set of conditions that we know have resulted in evolution here on earth, of course, but also just by kind of thermodynamics um, would also be the conditions where we expect life to be able to evolve just generally. What are some of the methods that we're looking for those planets today on earth? Yes. As, as I like to say, uh, the search, uh, for intelligent life in the universe is a, is a very real problem. Mm. Actually, uh, we know already that that's possible because of us. So Earth is the proof that intelligent life in the universe is, is possible. So we are not uh, asking for searching for a, uh, a square planet or something that we haven't seen before. So, so it's just searching more of us. Of course, uh, uh, 
planets similar to Earth is their priority, not only because we know that it works, but also, as you said, that in terms of thermodynamics, there are some requirements that end up in that uh, intelligent life and, um, and complex life will be uh, uh, more likely in, in, in those planets. But uh, uh, search for those uh, planets, we are searching for anything. So we are detecting uh, Jupiter-like planets, Neptune-like planets, even considering detecting life, uh, just planets that are more similar to Earth past, when there was no complex life and there's only microbial life and there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. So we are trying to search for anything as possible. So, and uh, there are different methods. And um, since the 2010, we have been detecting, well, the first exoplanets were detected in 1992 from the Arecibo Observatory. Mm-hmm. But those planets were around a dead star, a pulsar star. It's a star that exploded, and all stars that exploded left behind a core. Mm-hmm. And around, we found around that core three planets. And at that moment, it was something impressive because, wait, 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 first detection of planets, and the first detection of planets is, is around stars that already blow up and uh, and how they survive it. And, right, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so it's not impossible. Now we believe that those planets were formed after the explosion from the remaining material. But it was in 1995 that then a Swiss team detected the first uh, exoplanet, our regular stable star like our sun, and the rest is history. But in 2010, we started to detect the smallest ones, similar to Earth in size, and, uh, and in the habitable zone. So where the right distance from the star that they could uh, have uh, liquid water, if they, are provi- if they are big enough like Earth, uh, maybe a little bit smaller or bigger, and an atmosphere. You have to remind that the moon is next to us in the habitable zone. And because it doesn't have an atmosphere, then it cannot hold water. So it's very important the size of the planet. And even if the size is too large, if even that about two times the, the size of, uh, of Earth, then it probably will have, if the atmosphere is more than 1% of the, of the, of the mass of the planet, then it will make any liquid water solid at the surface, no matter the temperature, because the pressure will be so high. And just 1%, just 1% of the mass of the planet be uh, constituted by the atmosphere, it will be solid no matter the temperature. So that's why the range is about 0.5, which is about the size of Mars, to uh, up to two times the, the size of Earth, probably smaller. And, uh, and as we know, we, it has to have uh, to be rocky because the ocean planets won't be good. Gas planet won't be good. Uh, ocean planet won't be good. It has to have a rocky. Um, but we don't know more else. So we have been detecting this planet since 2010. And we know their size. I mean, the radius or their mass, sometimes both. And the other thing is the orbit, which tells if the planet is in the habitable zone, but that requires an atmosphere. So that's science and orbit is everything we have been uh, knowing for uh, the last 10 years. 
But now we have a shift in the next decade, this decade now, is that uh, now we have the capability to see the atmosphere of those planets. We already have the capability of that for bigger planets like Jupiter or Saturn, but not for smaller planets like Earth-size. But now we have that capability and, and there's a new telescope, a James Webb Space Telescope that we will be launching 2021 this year. And, um, or maybe the next year, we don't know. <laughs> it has been delayed for so long. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, and, and that uh, wonderful telescope will be able, probably, just to see the atmosphere of, the, of those uh, planets that we already detected. And we are eager to know more. And uh, just to see if they have first an atmosphere, as we believe that they should have. Sure. And, uh, and uh, what's the composition of the atmosphere? Uh, water, oxygen, or not? Uh, or, and other gases like methane and uh, CO2, et cetera. And so to pull, to get that data on the composition, you're doing, you're basically pulling like spectra, right? You're pulling in this chemical spectra. Okay. Yes, those are, that only works for transiting planets. Mm. And the most famous case for this is the Trappist system. It's about 40 something uh, light years away. And the, around this Trappist one star, there are six planets, transiting planets, all move uh, in front um, and behind the star from our point of view. So we can see the light of the star and then when the planet blocks the light of the star, sunlight passes through the atmosphere. And we will see how the atmosphere of the planet changes the light from the star. Got it. Okay. The original composition of the, of the, of the light, you see it changes because it absorbs part of that light depending on what uh, constituents are in this. Atmosphere. Sure. And that would tell us a lot because with one system, you have planets that are very close to the star, which we believe won't be, or, or won't have any atmosphere at all. Mm -hmm. You have planets about three or maybe four in the habitable zone. So we believe it should have atmosphere, maybe water there. And you have one planet outside, but probably very cold. So that might have atmosphere, but it will be very cold. So one system, Many planets, a diversity of planets, that's the best target so far. There are other systems with two planets, three planets, but only one in the habitable zone. So this is probably the best uh, candidate on, on farther away. And this is probably the, the nearest and more diverse uh, to study. It's a, it's, a, it's a full laboratory. We will learn a lot uh, from this system alone. Sure. Oh, man, that's so fascinating. I'm really... I'm really looking forward to uh, following some of that data as it as it comes in and reading about it. That's so that's so crazy. And uh, and uh, not only you will be able to detect uh, 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 the composition of the atmosphere, but if you detect oxygen and methane, mm -hmm. that will be something remarkable because that might be something produced by life. Right. Oxygen right, alone, we can, uh, we all know that oxygen are produced by uh, plants and phytoplankton in, in the ocean. They provide oxygen in the atmosphere. So everybody says that oxygen is a, is a good biosignature, indication mm -hmm. of life. 
But what, now we know that that might be, oxygen alone might not be the case because we know of other processes that could um, uh, make oxygen or, sure. or leave oxygen in the atmosphere, depending on the original composition of the atmosphere through time. But methane, there are natural ways also to produce methane, but a planet with oxygen and methane, they tend to react with each mm -hmm. other. And the only way just to, that we know of so far is, uh, is uh, there's a biological process keeping those at uh, a bait there, oxygen and methane. So it's not only then detecting this uh, atmosphere, but also the possibility of detecting life or biosignatures, like we like to say. So, so we move it from detecting planet in the last decade, and now this decade is the, the along with the atmosphere, is the biosignatures decade. Because we are now able to sample the atmosphere and even tell if the, there is a, a wide, planet-wide biological process. So if we detect those, then we will say, okay, so, that might be life there, but what kind of life? Well, it could be just uh, like, uh, like oxygen produced initially in our planet. There were no plants. It was produced by microbial life in the oceans. Mm -hmm. So it could be something like that. It could be like later on on Earth that once we have plants, then also they produce oxygen and we have the combination of oxygen, oxygen from, from oceans and plants like right now. Or might be at the point that there's animals life uh, feeding of that uh, vegetation or intelligent life. We won't know. And that's why there are other uh, attempts. And there's, there's not much covered so far in the, in, the, in the media about this. But their uh, intentions also are trying to move the next step forward. Not only biosignatures indication of life, but also technosignatures just to figure out is there uh, uh, intelligence and technology in this case. Sure. It's not in the traditional setting. So there are proposals already approved by NASA that for when we do these observations for this planet and search for uh, ingredients in the atmosphere like oxygen methane, ingredients telling you that there is some life, also search for other in components that are, we know are could only be produced artificially mm -hmm. or even uh, uh, silicon in the surface telling you that they're using uh, solar panels. Hmm, interesting, okay. And then, so there are people thinking seriously, and I mean seriously that NASA approved a proposal for doing that. And, uh, and uh, so, and when we will have this data in this decade, we will search for these uh, components. I mean, we might have the, also the alternative of, of signatures, So that's the other keyword, biosignatures and signatures. Any indication of technology. This is an, a, a term evolved from the traditional SETI, which was only listening to extraterrestrial life. So you have to rely on this uh, intelligent life building radio telescope and sending your signals. Right, sure. there. But uh, signatures include that, but also when we look for any way, any intelligent way to detect uh, like uh, technology. Like for example, uh, gases produced uh, by technology. Right, atmospheric pollutants. Yes, and Absolutely. then uh, uh, 
uh, surface covered by uh, 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 silicon. Um, also, if you see, for example, uh, uh, mega structures, and we hear a lot of that in, in the last years, sure. the mega structure uh, blocking the atmosphere. So any way that uh, you can um, detect a, a, ten, a technology, so that's incorporated in this signatures. That's so. Those are the new keywords: biosignatures and signatures. And we will hear a lot more of those words in this decade. Oh my goodness! Well, uh, Professor Mendez, thank you so much for coming on the show. I I feel like I could have you on for another hundred episodes, um, and, we, and we wanted we would only scratch the surface of all the interesting stuff we could talk about. Um, it was seriously such a pleasure having you on the show. Um, is there anything you'd like to promote to the listeners, places they can find you, um, other kind of things you think they should look out for? We have our, uh, since 2010, we have the, a catalog of potentially habitable planets on the web. It's the Habitable Exoplanet Catalogs. You can search for that. So we keep track of those planets that are maybe potentially habitable. And you can always find me on Twitter as Prof. Abel Mendes. And uh, I share a lot of news about astrobiology in general, from microbial life to exoplanets and intelligent life. Yeah, it's great. One of the best Twitter accounts I follow by far. Always super interesting stuff. And we will, of course, link it out to that uh, Twitter account for listeners so you can go find uh, Professor Mendez. Um, thank you again so much for listening. We have been the Mad Scientist Podcast, and we will be back next week. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days being a grown up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.